From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Been doing it every week for seven years. For the last year, we've been coming to you virtually via our friends at Zoom. The whole crew is here on Zoom, that is. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Going to talk a little COVID-19 in the first quarter. Going to do some interviewing in the last quarter. In between, we'll talk about whatever sports are on people's minds. Find out a little bit about what's on your mind. Scour the internet and our mailbag to answer those questions. Always delighted to be here, guys. I, as we've just been talking, as we've been kibitzing a bit as we start this show, I'm in Philadelphia for the first time in a while. Delighted to be in Center City, Philadelphia, especially given that it's got this this flash of beautiful March weather in the Northeast. Makes me feel welcome. How are you guys doing this afternoon? How are you thinking about the world of coronavirus? Doing well, doing well. I mean, it is a beautiful day in Philadelphia, and I do have to say, like, at least in the uh, short term, i.e. probably for the next year or so, it'll be, it's kind of nice to enjoy just how outdoors all the activities and dining in Philadelphia has gotten. I mean, urbanists have been begging for decades that we, like, would take over some of these parking lanes and make more kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, pedestrian and, like, kind of, you know, local friendly activities as opposed to everybody driving in and parking. And at least until around this time next year, um, that'll be, uh, that'll be the case. And so we can enjoy a Philadelphia that looks a little bit more like Paris for at least, uh, next six, eight months. Hey, it so always looks experiment a little like there. Paris. It's always looking a little like Paris, our little parks and our, our, at least for a block at a time, it looks like. Paris. Sure. Yeah, think- no, but in the great convex combinations between Paris and Pittsburgh, it usually <laughs> looks a little bit more like Pittsburgh. <laughs> And now it looks a little bit more like Paris. Hey, Pittsburgh and, is a lovely city. It uh, is a lovely city. <laughs> and Kate, Kate met Paris, Texas, uh, but go ahead. Paris, yeah. Texas. Yeah. Let me just say that I wish we could we could have tr- transformed some of that outdoorness out to the suburbs, which has not done the kind of construction that you've seen in Philadelphia. And New York City, by the way, which you I've been You work on time. some walkable areas out in the suburbs. That's not something you do out there. That's something you choose against when you move out there. Yeah, well, no, but we have some nice downtowns. I live a few blocks from mm-hmm. Ardmore, and we've had the opportunity, but it hasn't been seized. And I have to say, there's been a huge amount of building in the last few years, somewhat controversial, because it's a strain on the taxes and the, the school system. Lots and lots of apartment buildings, which makes it, in some level, more like a city. Um, and we'd like to see some yeah. of those those things change. And I so, think that is kind of the gradual as cities kind of expand outwards. That's kind of you're on the sort of you're basically in that transition zone where I think it probably will become more, quote unquote, urban and walkable mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff. I don't Shane's know. If, if, is it the case that kind of suburban areas have more like outdoor kind of like, you know, they're more likely to have big outdoor kind of like areas for seating already built into them if they're kind of no they don't that's not too bad yeah even charming ones i mean audi is talking about one of the more charming suburbs in the united states the main line of philadelphia most suburbs don't have even that local vibe as you hit Mm -hmm. some of the towns but my question for you shane and more generally you mentioned urbanist before yeah and if you combine urbanist with futurist what are they saying the impact of this thing will be i mean is it is it the case that we necessarily go back to normal on the other side of this or do we no no because i mean if you kind of think it it could represent a a major sort of sea change some pluses and some minuses i mean the kind of i think one of the urbanist worries is that this you know the kind of like 
how, uh, you know, this type of COVID kind of trauma will kind of induce a, a kind of second flight out, like another wave of flight out into the suburbs. And certainly, mm. you know, if mm. you look at things like, you know, a lot of people, like I think record, record kind of purchases of country homes and that type of stuff. So Housing prices be... are way, way up where I live, which right. I live in Ardmore. So yeah. right, right in the urban suburban areas, the prices are skyrocketing. So, so for, kind seen... of ur- for urban centers, that would be you know, not necessarily such a good thing because it probably would further impoverish the tax base and stuff like that. Do um, we see the concomitant reduce in pricing in in like no, no, because I, if, if anything, I, if anything, I think it's just making kind of I, I think it's just going to induce a selection mechanism of both people into the city and out of the city because it again one of the like long term effects could be very positive for the inner city because it's going to actually make things more livable and enjoyable for the residents right i mean again if if half of these like so much of the city real estate right now in land area is devoted to people who don't live here i.e people that drive into work and park and then drive home and a lot of that can kind of basically be removed as a process so a we're looking we're they're anticipating maybe there might be a permanent there's certainly been a temporary but there might even be a permanent reduction in traffic in and out of cities because less yeah. people actually have to commute for work they can so much more of that can be done from home and the people that are you know and so therefore it kind of clears out a lot of space that actually can be used for residents in within the cities and so like a lot of these kind of like restaurants in parking spots, why are those things? Why would we necessarily have those as parking spots in the future? It reminds me, Shane, of when the Pope visited Philadelphia a few years ago, yeah. and they shut down. They roped off the entire center city. There was no yeah. traffic for a little while, for a few days, or maybe just a couple of days. But in the entire city, center city, and people talked like, about, they fantasized a little bit. And I, I mean, these were already these are already things. I think we're moving this direction anyway. Like just because of like shared like shared driving and stuff like that. I think mm-hmm. you know you know the Uber. Rev- Revolution or whatever was going to kind of basically cut down on kind of commuting, at least like, you know, individual commuting and hopefully cut down on traffic and cut down on the need for parking. So I think we were kind of moving that direction anyway, but COVID could be kind of a, a huge sort of jump forward for that if, well, so to people, the extent that it's permanent. People may not know that Shane does work on urban analytics. It's a, it's a, I don't know how, to what extent it's risen all the way into your portfolio, but I know it's been a long time. Oh, it's probably the main, it is certainly something. And it's certainly, I think the thing, I, I mean, you know, the nice thing I get to for two hours to discuss with you guys, how this continues to impact will impact in the future, kind of the sports analytics side of things in sports. I've been thinking when I haven't been thinking about that, I've been thinking about how this kind of impacts cities and, mm-hmm. and how they might mm-hmm. kind of be designed and laid out in the future. It is a fascinating kind of time for, for, for city design too. We need to do a little research on housing prices because it can't be, well, I guess it could be, but I mean, housing prices have gone up everywhere. I mean, there, where are the soft spots? There have to be soft spots. Someone t- is like, does Schiller have a housing index that breaks? No, it no. Down I mean, by- and I, I, I didn't mean to claim that um, housing prices right now, I don't look at housing prices a lot within the city. I don't, I mean to claim that housing prices are kind of are going on up kind of contemporaneously with suburban housing prices. I wouldn't be surprised if at least in the short term being IE the next okay. five years or so, there's maybe a okay. decrease, but I think cities will kind of evolve the, the demand long-term demand within inter, inner cities and urban centers, I don't think is going to go down terribly because of COVID. Okay. So let me say what actually we usually, you know, the first half hour, we usually talk about what caught our eye in this case, COVID land. Actually, the best piece of news I've seen today has nothing to do with the vaccine, it ha- um, which there isn't brand new news except potentially the AstraZeneca having some issues. It, it has nothing to do with the number of cases, which, by the way, is not going down. Um, but actually, 
Pfizer today has just started randomized trials about a protease inhibitor pill. And that to me is quite interesting. So this would we'll be- say, Hold on, pill- describe, de- define proteus inhibitor. So um, my, I don't have tremendous knowledge of this, but it has to do with how the virus attaches onto a cell. And this protease inhibitor, besides possibly being something that can treat COVID, they claim it can uh, treat SARS and MERS. And it would be a pill that the minute you have any symptoms, you take two pills a day for five days. And basically it prevents any type of serious symptoms from happening from COVID or any of these other types of infectious diseases. But it, it wouldn't be the type of thing that would confer any immunity or anything no, like no, that. No, 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 it's not meant for that. Retro. No, no. No, no, I just, I just wanted but to no, clarify you, that we this were ta- is a pill about treating COVID, not Correct. a Well, we were talking kind of off air about immunity. both variants, but also about going to large events. You know, my view is, um, you know, they say these other, vac- the vaccine is 95%, 97% effective. But if you surround yourself with a large number of people, you're getting potentially a significant enough dosage that there could still be a half a percent or a one percent chance of you're getting something which to some Mm. people isn't a lot but to me it is but if i knew that i could take a pill for twice a day for five days if i was to roll a bad 99 percent die and it would have come up on the one percent i think that would change my behavior and it it further moves it into a flu land right Basically, Correct. you know, I, I think long term, I mean, I, even the worst case scenario or, or no, not the worst case scenario, but like a, 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 de- a dealable scenario is that this basically just becomes like the flu. Well, let me just tell you, let me just tell you some data, though, on that, because I looked at that this week. So, first of all, the death rate is clearly down from covid. However, and something interesting, which um, Adi pointed out about six months ago, there was a differential death rate of men and women that has now shrunk. There is no longer a differential death rate to men and women. It's identical between men and women. However, it is still seven to 10 times the death rate of the flu. So even though the death rate is way down, if you look at the, again, comparative death rate of COVID to the flu, it is still... Hold on, Eric, Eric, you're just saying something that two things that are not quite true. One is... Well, this is the data from the CDC. Great. The CDC has been terrific about giving data without context. The, all of this is age dependent. It has to be age dependent. And in fact, death rate relative to the flu is in one of the most age dependent thing there is. So for... People who are older, it's 10 times more deadly. But people who are younger, it's the same. And people who are really young, it's less deadly. So I made a statement that was a weighted average death rate. That's right. Directly reported by the CDC. And so I'm just commenting that what I said was entirely accurate according to the CDC. It's helpful to unpack it, though. It's helpful to unpack it. And and I will also say that that, – and and by the way, I'm not sure that what they're giving you – they're just – they're giving you not a weighted average by population. They're giving you a weighted average by infection, which is very different. Um, in other words, all the people infected, they're calculating the, 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 uh, the rate rather than if everybody was infected in the population, what would be the death rate? The other thing that I should say is that throughout the, the uh, there has been not big, that big a, par- a difference in the death rate for men and women in aggregate. But at every age, men were about twice as likely to die. And the reason why in aggregate, this is a classic Simpsons paradox, is because women so greatly dominate the 80 and up 
um, cohort, if you will, by like ridiculous numbers. Well, I, um, I can just and, say I looked at that number. The aggregate death rate for men was 20 percent higher than women as of six months ago. And so that has the now, aggregate. In yeah, aggregate. So the weighted average is what I've been reporting. And that's right. now down to zero. There is right. no gap anymore. Yeah, but that's not the that, everybody has an age. And at any given age, men are still way more likely to die than a woman of well, the same except, age. except if you look at who's vaccinated, they have vaccinated the elderly population. So that's going to shrink the weighted proportion yes, that of will, people that, that, that are that in the elder group, which is what has actually led to the compression. But also, you also said something else that, that is somewhat speculative, and, and which is that if you look at the people who don't who don't aren't protected by the vaccine. So um, you saw you, you you interpreted the failure vaccine failure to be a function potentially. And I don't know the answer of viral load. And that if you went into a big crowd where there's enough people and enough potential, that's dangerous. I'm not sure that's the answer. Not I'm not saying it's not. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, but I think it has to do with more with innate immunology. So in other words, there's some that the, the people for whom it doesn't work on. It just doesn't work on them. Um, and I, I don't know. That, in other words, for example, I know someone in particular who's a nurse. And in order to work as a nurse, you have to have measles, uh, the measles vaccine, and you have to have titers to it. And uh, they tested her and she didn't have titers. So they gave her the, the, um, the, the vaccine again. And she still didn't have titers. It turns hey, out, Adi, what is titers? Titers are, are the antibodies, the, the presence of the antibodies. I'm, I'm, I could get this word wrong. It's a medical term. Um, but, but it basically is evidence. And so the point was, is that she doesn't develop immunity to the, to the measles. It just doesn't happen. So there are going to be fractions of people who this vaccine will not work on. Just and, doesn't and, going to do it. And let again, me, kind of, just, let me just understand. I just want to understand. So I'm not I'm, what you're saying is very likely true. I just want to understand. We all agree that pre-vaccine, the amount of dosage exposure that you had was certainly related to the likelihood yes, yes, of your right, getting right. COVID. Mm -hmm. Then what would be the statistical and or medical rationale when now under the vaccine, the mm -hmm. level of dosage would not still lead to an increased propensity? Maybe not the same degree, but I don't understand why before oh, the vaccine, uh, it wouldn't lead, it would lead to it. But after the vaccine, it wouldn't. Uh, it very white might, might be. I'm not uh, this. This is probably a factor. But I also think that the individual immune response is, is probably that might my my intuition, and that's not highly developed in this case, since I'm not a doctor or a virologist, suggests that the immune response is going to be the dominant source of variation rather than the viral load variation. It's a terrifically interesting distinction that I had not thought of. And I was jumping on Eric's comment as well for different reasons, because implications for behavior once you're vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so it just it, it really jumped out to me. But now Adi has introduced this possibility that I'm not 99% if I'm vaccinated, I am either the same as I was before or probably 100. <laughs> and and the, I mean, I, it, you're, you're, you're asking, a, you're, you're distinguishing it in a way that's no, I mean, no one, someone knows this. And I hadn't thought about the fact that it could be that it's totally individual difference driven. I had thought about it very much in the way of, no, I, I just have a reduced likelihood walking around the world if I'm vaccinated. Well, that's yeah, an interesting, and, and I mean, I, I, I it's an interesting theory. I've never heard anyone posit that theory that it's a mixture distribution between, let's say, zero percent, not exactly, but you know what I mean, zero percent and a small number. If that's true, which I believe it could very well be true, that's a story I think that needs to be told. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, com coming again back to this whole like, you know, your individual behavior, society's behavior. When we talk about when can we kind of quote unquote, unquote go back to normal? Well, so, Eric, like. If this thing, for example, for your age bracket, got down to the point where it's only five times as deadly as the flu, 
would you still isolate? Like, because I, I assume you don't take any actions to, like, when flu season rolls around, certainly as a society, we don't dramatically alter our behavior. And I assume individually, you do not dramatically alter your behavior. So at what, what point is it within the window of kind of a flu-like thing, or what would keep it out of that window where you wouldn't just start, not, no, you would go to no longer modifying your behavior based on the existence of COVID? Yeah, it's, it's a fair question. Um, I can say in my case, I don't know how much it affects the flu. I think the flu vaccine, maybe Adi has said this before, maybe it's 50% effective somewhere in that yeah. range. Um, yeah. I take the flu vaccine immediately. I mean, the minute it comes out, I, I'm an October person, yeah. you know, jab me. Me too, me, by the way. Jab me immediately for the flu. But um, I, I, I wouldn't then be like, well. I would, say it, I would say it the following way. And again, it's conditional on age. And I don't know. I think I'm near the crossing point where flu and COVID may actually be equally kind of deadly in some sense. Because I know older than me, it's much higher. Younger than me, it's much lower. So I'm, I think I might be near no, that. We, we, you flatter ourselves. We're not that young. Um, <laughs> uh, COVID, COVID is more dangerous than the flu at our age. Oh, He's oh. including me in this whole discussion. I think my point is the following. I think if you told most people, and I understand it's age dependent, but if you told most people that 250,000 people a year we're going to die of the flu. Would you Because ch- that's five times essentially what it is now, 200 mm-hmm. to 250,000. And would you change your behavior? I think some people probably would. That's starting yeah. to get to a very significant number where, and again, it's age dependent and it's comorbidity dependent. And so I don't have high age and I don't have comorbidities, but I would, I would probably think carefully about what events I would go to. And I might become a mask wearer at certain types of common Eric, events. This is, this is what I was about to ask. We yeah. were talking a few minutes ago about long-term consequences for the city. Are there other long-term behavioral consequences? So we've learned a little bit about how to protect ourselves um, to these contagious situations. And it, it, it kind of has to be the case, is it not that you would expect people in non-COVID yeah, people, years, people, with, I, I, I they, think they go to people wearing, go to the ma- bigger, people wearing masks when they're sick is something, again, they've been doing in many Asian countries for many years. And I think that I, I wouldn't mind that one going global. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're sick, wear a mask. I mean, you know, we've clearly now established, you know, some data on that being somewhat useful. I mean, you know, not everybody buys into it. And certainly not everybody is going to follow that particular social custom, even if it's, you know, I do. But that, that's an example of something we, that would probably could and probably will stick around in the new normal. And would you go as far as to say, what about if you're not sick, but you're worried about others being sick? So it's the height of flu season. It's, it's January. I think it will always be. I, 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 I suppose you're saying, I mean, voluntarily, you can always wear, you wear a mask whenever you want. It's I think what you're really speaking to is, you know, in the future, like, 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 would there ever be like mask mandates? No, or no, like I'm that? talking about behavior change. I'm talking oh. about what might it have changed what we do. We've <laughs> learned. Maybe, We've learned. Maybe. I mean, certainly in my current age, um, well, you know, let me, let me put I'm, it this I'm way, only going to be wearing a mask at a social convention from like this summer forward, basically. But let me put it that did y'all not experience this thing for like from March to September where nobody, I mean, most of us didn't expose ourselves to anything yeah. without a mask. Like, I didn't have a whiff of a cold, not like like six, six months or whatever it was with not a no. whiff of a cold. So, so a couple God. of things to, to, to first of all, I just read today that the uh, residents or I mean, medical students who did rotations in pediatrics and have to redo it because there was so little illness among kids. Um, I also not had a whiff of a cold allergies. Yes, but haven't had a whiff of anything. There's just been a, a complete 
collapse of the uh, whole emergency rooms are ghost towns. I just, I just had over for a barbecue, uh, an emergency worker who, who got vaccinated ages ago, it seems like. And he said, uh, Narberth ambulance runs are way down. And that's partly because nine people don't want to call 911, uh, 911, um, as much as they used to. Uh, th- that's starting to creep up. But there's just been a whole collapse of, of, of all the kinds of illnesses and accidents uh, that people have because they spend a lot of time with each other. That's going to return. But I do think that we're going to see mask wearing almost like the way Asian countries do it. That's going to become commonplace. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be a very long time before people are comfortable going to a crowded concert. Uh, maybe young people will do it. They're already doing it down in Florida. They don't care. But the thing mm-hmm. that that uh, that that is a concern for me and, and as a as a cantor on the high holidays. Um, I'm not sure we're going to have a congregation in September um, because uh, it's it's a thousand people in a big auditorium, older by and large. I'm not sure those people are going to feel comfortable for a long time doing that. Um, and so those are those are things I think they're going to be with us for a long time. Are they going to be permanent? Perhaps. I mean, I'm wondering whether a genuine crowd. I think maybe people of a certain age will never be feel safe again in a crowd. And never, and simply not. Well, Adi, what about what about classrooms? For so, I, I I was in the classroom yesterday. By the way, I taught a hybrid class with a handful of students in the class and uh, and the rest of them online. And I'm optimistic that we can grow that some over the rest of the term because the conversations we had, even with just eight people in a room, were reminiscent of what it used to be like. But mm-hmm. you know, we see that we see that the trajectory of vaccinations in this country, and we anticipate a time when things are close to back to normal. But if you consider a classroom is kind of worst case, it's a lot of people in a closed environment for an extended period of time. And it's not something that we ought to be running back to very quickly. Um, so what do you think is going to happen in the fall? And, 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 you know, it's different for at different ages, but just in, in, in grad school, for example, you might be asked to teach a hundred undergrad statistics. You will be usually do in the fall. Are you going to run in the classroom and do that? Do you expect others to be there? Is Are we still because of this tale that we're expecting? I'm not teach, scheduled to teach in the fall, so I get to kind of, you know, this is hypothetical. But if I was to, if, if somebody gave me, if I was to, assigned to teach a 100-student class in, the, in, in lecture, in person, I would do it. I yeah, would have no qualms about I'm it. I'm going to do it in the fall. I will, I will, be, I will be vaccinated by then. And um, I think they, everybody in that classroom will have the option to have been vaccinated by then. And okay. again, both them and my age groups are such that I, I don't see, see COVID as a particularly large I think, people, large I think students though, will be given a choice. Yeah, sure. I, I think I don't think any, I think this country anybody being compelled to take it it's going to be pretty dicey. Can I, can I, there's um, a, there's there's a couple big uncertainties that'll be resolved by September. I expect one of them is will a, co- a population for which that doesn't get 80 to 90% vaccination, will that, will that be sufficient to drive the, va- the virus to zero? Or will it take, or, or can you do it at 60%? Because I'm actually quite confident uh, in a forecast that there's a lot of this country that isn't going to get vaccinated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've spoken mm-hmm. to some of them and they seem like normal people and they have their convictions. And, and, I, and as I said once before, short of a major shove, uh, yeah. they're not going to be pushed to take a vaccine. So we'll know whether or not the virus rates will drop down to zero, even in the presence of that. 
Um, I can t- tell you that we're we're vaccinating. We're twenty percent now. The rates are stay are stuck. They're not like going down. No, we're um, twenty twenty five by the way. Twenty five. I mean the rates of. But if you look at the COVID rates, they're just hovering. They're not really changing that much. And I tracked Israel's rates really tightly, and um, surprisingly, it it dropped. It took a while to drop. Then it dropped, and then it went up again when they opened up the schools. Right. And then it's in the last three weeks, it has just fallen off a table. Um, if you look at the reproduction number rates across the world, there's the zero countries, take them out. And then there's the most of the West. They're up around 0.91 and they're and when, did, when, did, when did Israel, for example, hit 50 percent vaccinated? Uh, probably early February. Because um, there is a lag, sort of. There's a lag. You know, so, there's going to be a couple weeks. Of so lag right now, their reason. reproduction number is 0.6. There isn't a Western country anywhere close to that, and it's essentially dropping faster than you can. It's just almost. It's just falling off a table. So if we start to see that here, maybe sometime in the summer, then we'll know better. Real quickly, we should also learn. I don't have the stats in front of me, but we should learn from the UK as well because they are ahead of the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. And it gives a le- it gives kind of a middle case between the U.S. and Israel. So right. I love the learning from Israel, but we should generalize. No, I mean worth noting that the U.K. is at something a very high first shot, an incredibly low second, second shot, like well, lower fine. than the worst state. Well, only because you know, like Dying. so, so so they because they gave out basically they prioritized getting out the first shot. It's unclear they You're actually saying have the that that's like a bad thing. One. You're saying well, that like oh, that's a bad oh, thing. only that I've heard out of the UK that they're actually unclear. They can actually they're they're running out of supply such that they may not be able to give the second shot on time as much as they would like. Yeah, I just wanted to say by the way, the one thing we've talked about uncertainty on this show, and you know, I I was said a few weeks ago we should play this game. I wish I knew X, and you could fill in X. I wish I knew how long these vaccines last for, because you plan on going into the classroom in September. So let's say you had the vaccine February, March. Um, what data do you have that says this vaccine lasts seven months, ten months, twenty months, thirty months? How do you know what the <laughs> efficacy is for longer periods of time? And I'm not saying we know. We it's not. They've speculated it could be eighteen months, could be twenty. 24 months could be forever, but we don't know this. So let's add to the uncertainty. We don't know how long it is until you need a booster shot. And if it's you're in the classroom and you think you're protected and you're not, then you're not. But again, but but again, what if it just becomes like the flu? You teach any differently during flu season? But again, I'm going back to the data that Adi said. I'm more likely to die from COVID than I am from the flu. Unless no, no. But and again, it has to come down to where it's like the flu. Can I can I try a couple things to to uh, to show out? Um, First of all. The reason why this would stop the, the, the vaccine would be ineffective is the virus mutates. The flu virus mutates massively. It's got these giant mm-hmm. arms. It flips out. The, the mutations we're talking about with COVID are smaller. So in a year, that might be sufficient to accumulate something that evades the, the vaccine and we'd need another one. But when we're talking about treatments, there's a couple things. First of all, there's treatments that are vaccine or antibody related. There's also treatments and 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 we've gotten a whole hell of a lot better at treating COVID over the last well, year. That's what I just said I'm really excited about the Pfizer pill. You right, so pill. the protease pill. Punch in my but, pocket. You know, I, I could have something. I'll start popping them. So I, I mentioned that that uh, my sister was put on a clinical trial. I'm not sure I said that in, on the online um, that I'd heard about from a colleague at, at, at Johns Hopkins, and turns out it's fluoxetine, which is most famously known as Prozac. 
Um, and it was discovered by as effective in an observational study, which which essentially is a non-controlled experiment. They noticed that people on fluoxetine had a just didn't deteriorate anything like the rate that other people did. But of course, it's not controlled. It's an observational study. Blah blah blah. Confounder, confounder. Can side effects it. go? I t- I'll take Prozac side effects yeah, right. over like a so lot of these, other ones. So these this group at University of Washington they did a, a, a randomized controlled placebo controlled trial, and of course as it was massively underpowered. They only had about 80 in each arm of the study. But, and, and as you know, um, among generally healthy people who are not, don't have comorbidities and not old, uh, deterioration is somewhat rare. It happens about 10% of the time. Here's the results of the study. Eight, which is 10% in the placebo arm, and get ready for this, zero in the, in the, in the treatment arm which was barely statistically significant because it's the maximal result you can get. But it was it was because zero and eight by a binomial turns out to have about a 0.01 significance. So what ended up happening on the exact test on that? Yeah, it turns out the doctors just looked at this and they shrugged their shoulders and they said, "Uh, not that convincing. And so they're doing a much bigger trial. But it seems and I just want to throw out here. I was curious, why don't doctors prescribe this? It's a 60 cent pill with essentially no side effects, mm-hmm. a little nauseousness. Did you, had anyone ever heard about any doctor prescribing it? The answer is no. Um, and I believe this will end up potentially proving just one little piece that potentially, and it's actually quite effective on essentially our age type population, 50s, more or less, 40s, 50s, early 60s, without comorbidities, these kinds of little treatments can really make it in much more in line with the, the risk of a flu, mm-hmm. which is very, very small. Just no, and I mean, I, and I think we've, we, I think we've been traumatized by this whole last year, year yes. and a half or so, such that we've stopped. To, you know, that like I think in some people's minds, they're only going to kind of feel safe when COVID's gone. But COVID may never be again. We have to. I think those people need to. I mean, maybe they just will isolate for the rest of their lives, but, but they need to come to terms with starting to think about it like it's the flu, assuming the data match up with it being like the flu. And if it's like the flu. You know, unless the, these are people that actually dramatically alter their favors, uh, the, sorry, their behaviors every flu season, they can kind of go back to normal. Yep. I think I'm, I think I'll go back to what Kate said earlier. I think I'm going to view it as a range of probabilities. There are some things I might do in the future where I choose to wear a mask, whether I have to or not. There may be some things I choose to do where there might be some sort of preventative or some sort of pill that I can take in advance that makes me less likely. There might be some sort of pills where if I feel any type of symptoms, I start popping a protease inhibitor and I start doing that. If they offer booster shots, um, I'll start taking those. So I think most people are going to be on some spectrum of this seems like a heavily risky situation. I don't have to, but I might choose to wear a mask to something where we kind of go back to normal for I'll make it up 90% of the things we did in the past. Mm -hmm. Let me add one question for you guys as we're talking about personal consequences and personal decision policies. What does it mean to you guys as statisticians and skeptics about rare events to read articles like the one recently in the New York Times about unusual um, consequences like psychosis? There's a big article in the Times in the past week about a, a guy having psychosis. He gets COVID and gets psychosis. And then more generally, you hear a lot about these um, the, the long-term consequences and the folks that have downstream for indefinite periods of time, hard to predict consequences. And there's just, in general, there's a lot of uncertainty around the ramifications of contracting this thing. And for me, it's hard. I mean, 
it's hard not to react to that and say, okay, I really don't want this. Even if I'm unlikely to die, there are things that could happen that are bizarre and I don't have any control of it. I'd just rather not get on that carousel. But I don't want to be the person that's overreacting to, you know, to very unlikely events. So I'm curious your reactions to this. First of all, there's some been pushback on things like long, long, long-term COVID. Not that it necessarily doesn't exist. It's just that it's not necessarily that different from the usual things that happen to people when they get viruses. So um, I had mononucleosis, as many people do, but I had it in college. It took about a year to clear. Um, and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't debilitating, but it wasn't pleasant. And what's happening now is they're trying to baseline what the treatments, the, the long-term COVID against the baseline of what is out there. And it turns out a lot of shit is out there. And it's very hard to do because people just suffer stuff. And because COVID is happening, one-third of the population easily has it. Maybe not one-third tested positive, but one-eighth did. And, and, and maybe and that's a lot, a lot of people out there. Baseline that general trend of fatigue and psychosis. And now the loss of smell, that seems a little particular to COVID. But some of the other symptoms are just your body's reaction to viruses and others it could just be coincidental. So I'm not, I wouldn't be that impressed with the psychosis one because I don't see the mechanism. The smell, I think that's definitely attached to COVID. Um, and if you're a chef, that can be pretty debilitating, but it does seem to come back. I think the real issue is it does seem to alter you and, and we don't know whether or not you're permanently altered. Um, and and, uh, and that's, that's I'm definitely with you. I don't want to get it. Um, and and uh, But on the other hand, I'm not necessarily afraid as I might have once been. Okay. Adi, just on the, the very last thing here, since we need to wrap up, you mentioned your take is, you know, approximately a third of the population, let's just say U.S., a third of the population has had it, whether they tested positive or not. If you, if you, if you integrate that with 25%, as of today, we're at 25% of the U.S. population has had at least one shot. And by the way, of the older population above 65, it's 70%. So we're getting there. But give, give us, what, what do you guys say is the overall number of people, percentage of people in the U.S., who have either had it or had the vaccine, one of the two. So you can't just add 25 to 33, but you're going to do it in some way to get a ballpark of where we are as a country. I'll make my guess, everyone thinking about it in your heads. I'm going to go 50%. Well, as Adi knows, that's A plus B minus A times B. And it's exactly 33 plus 25 minus Damn. So let's, let's just say where 50% could come from, and that's therefore it was going to be my exact guess too. Uh, okay, I, I thought that's what you would say, and I think it's worth noting because that's quite a number. It is, I mean, we've, we've, we're at a, a bit of a, a, a milestone, really. And I know we got there partly by everyone getting it, but one way or another, we're getting closer and closer to what could be a return to normalcy. If not herd immunity altogether, return to normalcy. 50% is a big number. Mm-hmm. And at the, way, at the rate they're vaccinating, we will get up to, into the 70s or so. And I think anybody would expect a 70% number to have big consequences on the return to normalcy. Yeah, and again, it's, it, it depends on whether you're kind of, the objective here is we only go back to normal it, when COVID is quote unquote gone versus it just becomes at a low enough level that we can kind of deal with it like we do other health threats. Right. Right. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every week here on Sirius XM. We have the whole crew here, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Those are all professors of statistics. Eric, also professor of marketing 
and Cade Massey here, professor of the practice in OID. What is o- Do you guys know what OID stands for, fellas? Operation, Operation Information and Decisions. There you go. All right. Uh, we um, are available for your questions and observations. You can reach out to us at W Moneyball is our Twitter handle. Great way to reach us at W Moneyball. We try to stay on top of the world of sports analytics, especially. You can also send us email, considered a mailbag, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's our email address. We had a note in there today, guys, or this week anyway, on the long-term consequences of COVID for basketball players, by the way. So maybe we can get into that. If we can't get it this show, let's pick it up again. Lots of interesting stats. That comment came to us from Russell Warden. Russell dropped us a note. Says he doesn't even watch, listen to sports that much, but he, he, he likes the statistical conversation. So he threw us a, a sports and COVID stats article to dig into. Appreciated that note, Russell. Guys, on the basketball front, one of the great sporting events of the year. Any year have been going on for the last four days, four of the last five days anyway. Especially notable after missing it in 2020. March Madness. How have y'all consumed March Madness? What has caught your eye? about March Madness this year? I watched a lot of games over the weekend, more than I usually do, I think, in March Madness. I've gotten kind of into it. And, I mean, it's been great to kind of – you know, I I considered myself sort of lucky to have caught a few upsets before there ended up being being mostly upsets, actually. So maybe that just is the nature of the tournament this year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what was interesting is – Look, I don't know if motivation's an issue. You guys can tell me. This is an empirically testable thing, but I don't know if the answer is true. On the first day, there were four and four. So there were four upsets and four uh, favorites won. In the second day, I think it was seven and one. So here's my question to you. Hold on. There should have been more games than that, no? Weren't there 32 games in the first two days? Yes. So, so there six- were 32 games. Yeah. So I'm talking about, yeah. So maybe I'm talking about in round, uh, the second round. Okay. The second okay. round. I'm talking about the, the 16. There were four and four on yeah. Saturday, uh, Sunday, I guess, and seven and one on Monday. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. And my comment was, um, do teams that are the favorites, when they see other favorites get knocked off, does it lower the probability that they get knocked off? In other words, if you're a favorite, would you rather play the last game on the second day, or does it matter? Is there any order effect whatsoever? Not that in some sense they're not always trying, but could you make a motivational story that they're like, oh, my God, you know, Iowa just lost. They're a two-seed. We're a two-seed. We better not take this team lightly. <laughs> Eric, sometimes you, you strike me as a really – would have been a really productive Ph.D. student in behavioral science. You generate these hypotheses. And, and they're interesting, and I'm skeptical. Um, I think it's a super interesting idea, but do you – I mean, I, so are you generating it just for fun, or do you think it might be true? Um, I think there's probably a very, very, very small effect. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I think if we had enough games to study – and again, it's empirically testable. We can test – you know, if you just order the games in terms of their order number from 1 to 16 or 1 to 32, does the underdog do better in earlier games than later games? Mm-hmm. I just I, – I hypothesized I thought it was something that was actually empirically it, testable. Is, is, is one of – is I'm, missed, I'm missing your hypothesis now because I thought it was more um... – kind of a momentum story that that upsets themselves have momentum that they kind of get in the head of the favorites later in the day 
No, that is what I said, but in a, in, a, in a positive way. In other words, a favorite who's just seen an upset says, we're not going to let this happen to us. We, we're not oh. taking the number 15 lightly. You know, I'm the number two seed, oh. 15's just Anti-momentum. being the two. To the extent no, that it, they, would have, they had complacency going into the match. Correct, they, and now they, they saw upsets, and now they're, they're going to perform closer to their true ability than they would mm. have otherwise. That's interesting. Um, I think it is potentially true. I've I've got another kind of, I guess, behavioral question maybe. So real real quickly, Shane, before before you go, let me just point out that as as much as I'm skeptical of some of these stories – you know the paper by our colleague Jonah Berger. Yeah, down one at the half versus yeah, a half. Yeah, down one at half. It's a real thing. This is like a rigorous empirical paper by some serious guys, and it turns out that it is advantageous to be down one at the half. And it reminds me a little bit of what you're suggesting here, Eric. There's a complacency issue, and there's a waking up issue. Yeah, and look, if that effect is the fifth-order effect and it's worth 1% or 2%, then maybe that's what we'll see. Then that's what it is. But I do, if you're asking me, you ask me, do I think the effect is there? I said yes, and I think the effect is small. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my kind of question, uh, 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 similar uh, kind of, I guess, behavioral question. If I was a better and I, I, I had picked a top seed to kind of go the whole way, like I'd made a bet on a, t- a particular uh, team winning the entire thing, and it's one of the top teams that's still remaining, maybe on the other side of the bracket even, for example – Seeing so many upsets this weekend, does that change? Should, does that change my odds of winning? And which the other side of the I, could, I, I could argue either way, right? Of, of, of my top seed winning the tournament. Because well, I mean, it's want... kind of cleaned out I know, a it's lot mechanical. of the bracket. There, there's a mechanical advantage, obviously. Right. Because... But I mean, again, you know, I, I, on, the, on the other side of it, is there something about the fact that we've seen so many upsets so far? Yeah, do, I do, think, is yeah. do, is I this think... something to this kind of like in this weird COVID year, are upsets that much more likely now? Well, I think there's I think what you would say is Overall. if you were going to update the you know, certainty or belief you have in the strengths of the team as a function of their seating, you'd have to inject more uncertainty now than there was before the game started. Yeah. And so now, I mean, it's, it's not like the team's strength has changed, but if you ask me, if I'm taking the NCAA seating as a proxy for strength, I have to have more uncertainty than when I started. No, yes. at the same, I, again, no, that, I, but that that's true? probably a minor effect relative to teams with, even though it's an impro- imperfect proxy, like teams that were stronger getting kind of knocked off. And I know that's, that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it because we yeah. talked last time about Gonzaga. We were all kind of aghast that Gonzaga was such a strong favorite, one of 64 teams, but they were given whatever, a one-third chance of winning the dang thing. And we were arguing, you know, in the world of COVID with all the uncertainty, shouldn't we be regressing all these favorites? Yeah. But the other argument was, well, what if they're the exception? What if they're a team that has actually worked sure about we're certain that team is great and we're really unsure about everybody else that might you might actually see some legitimate separation that way and that might be something that happens in a tournament like this year where you knock out enough ones and twos and threes and you really do clear up the the path for the remaining ones and twos well let me just make sure i understand just from a statistical perspective let's say i let's say gonzaga who by the way has played almost a normal number of games i think they're 27 and 0 that puts them about normal for a full season i don't think they missed any games and if they go undefeated they'll play what four more games and they'll end up 31 and 0 that's certainly a total number of games that an, that a team would play but just to just to be clear let's say the first team gonzaga has very little uncertainty but because of covid or whatever reasons let's call it baylor the number 2 team has more uncertainty 
uncertainty, that still puts less probability on Gonzaga. I mean, if the second one has a wider distribution, even if the first one is tight, the wider distribution of the second one does make it more likely that the second one is better than the first one. But Eric, is it symmetrical? You need symmetrical in some ways if it's the number two team, consensus number two in the country, but higher variance. Um, Won't more of that variance come from being a worse team than from being a good team? Yeah. Like I'd rather play um, a 15 C I think as a good team, I'd rather play a 15 C that maybe, you know, with higher variance has been misappraised a bit than I would play a three or four seed that has been, you know, maybe misappraised a bit as well. I I just think, you know, no, I that's having these kind of like stronger teams, nominally stronger teams knocked out. Like realized upsets are good for top teams. We were it does change a, the model of how our expected value on maybe their upset as well. I, we were asking a different question. We're answering yeah. a different question. I'm agreeing with you. If I'm a top team, I'm absolutely thrilled that these top teams are, have been knocked out. Yeah. I'm absolutely happy Illinois is gone. I'm absolutely happy Iowa's gone. I'm absolutely happy that all of those teams are gone. And I think that dominates the uncertainty effect with the other teams. There's yeah. no doubt about it. I was just questioning. Um, if I was Gonzaga and I think I'm better than, let's say, Baylor, I'd want the certainty around Baylor to be really tiny, not wider. Because yeah. the bigger the width of that, if I know I'm better than them, I'd rather th- I'm really better than them and they have very yeah. little variance. Okay, so we, we do live to some extent in that world, but for the fact that there might be a ceiling on Baylor. I mean, they're already considered the best, the second best team in the country. But I, but I take your point. They might even be better. That's fair enough. And they did miss a sizable chunk in the season. Real quickly, guys, how – if you could – do this if you had some RAs and some data. And by the way, Adi has a team of essentially RAs and a bunch of data. How would you characterize the unexpectedness of tournament outcomes? What What are some different ways that we might point Adi's kids and say, "Hey, why don't you drum it up this way and see how the tournament stacks up?" Or what, what's a neat measure for unexpectedness in a tournament? So here's here's one of the things that I did. Um, if you look at right now, there are eight brackets of two. You could view it. There's 16 teams left. Um, if everything went according to um, chalk um there would be uh ones would be playing fours and twos would be playing threes so there's some would be five there'd be eight fives and the actual numbers are six eighteen twenty thirteen six five thirteen thirteen so to me that's a pretty neat measure in other words the sum of we could take them individually the sum would be 40 you could take each one there's basically three of them that are five slash six it's kind of multimodal there's three of them that are five slash six then there's five of them where they're much greater than five i mean 13 three 13s and 18 and a 20 I feel like to the extent that we can use the seeding as a proxy for their yeah. actual team strength, the yeah. sum of the seeds makes the most sense as kind of a simple measure. If yeah. you didn't like the seeding specifically as a measure of their strengths, you could of course have your ELO model of each teams and kind of create some kind of measure metric based on the probabilities implied by that ELO model. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you know, do it I that would suggest way. that um, the problem with the with the rankings is it has weird properties, uh, particularly with outliers. What I would just suggest is some sort of a simple model that turns the probability turns two ranks into a probability. Doesn't you have to be ELO? With very the, and then and then just sums up the log of those probabilities. That's what we call an entropy measure. And entropy is a measure of randomness. That's what it, and surprise. In fact, it, when it was introduced, that was the term for it. Um, and so uh, a season with a lot of surprise. It has a high entropy and one that, that did that goes according to chalk would yeah. have low entropy. 
ex post low probability is yep. uh, is one one version of what you're saying. And also, you're pointing out that the difference between seeds isn't linear. So we've known for a long time the ones, especially ones, really kick out historically as more likely to win. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the likelihood of winning as you go from drop in likelihood as you go from one to two is much steeper than drop from two to three. So that the probability approach would get at that. Okay, Adi. We got some data, man. In fact, we put that question on Twitter, and we got some we got some Kaggle data. If you want to direct some students, I'd love to see that entropy measure measuring tournaments. You could look at thirty five years. They went to sixty four yeah. teams in eighty five. You got thirty five years of data, and you could characterize the unexpectedness. And no one loves the question of unexpectedness more than when you apply it to March Madness. So I think yeah, that's a good one. We actually had a group of students in my in my Keystone my Capstone Capstone course in the Keystone State, um, and they did a great job about football, a football unexpectedness, and they used the win probability models to sort of rate mm-hmm. the uh, the quality of a game, looking at the win probability. Yeah, I actually saw trajectory. this came this came up very recently for me. I was I, I saw somewhere that I just saw highlights that like of a game within the last I can't remember it was I think it was 2013. It was between um, the Ravens and I think the Titans, but mm-hmm. anyway, there was 36 points scored in the last two minutes. What? It was this crazy what? game? I'll send no. you the clip of this. 36 points scored. In the, it was like a 9-12 game up until that point, and right. 36 points scored in the last two minutes. And if you look at the win probability, you know the chart of win probability. Oh, I don't even believe it. It's this crazy. It's a video it looks game. Like an you're EKG reporting or something. You're reporting like that. a couple of kids playing a video game. You shouldn't represent that as an actual NFL game. Yeah. Yeah. Eric. The other thing I was going to point out that. You know, besides Gonzaga still being, by the way, an overwhelming favorite at plus 155 of the 16 remaining teams, they're at plus 155 right now. The thing that shocked me even more than that is kind of the inversion in ranks that have happened. So one team, which had a Cinderella story a couple of years ago, Loyola Chicago, which remember they went to the final four, they're now the fifth most, they're tied for the fourth favorite yeah. amongst the teams that are left. Yeah. Now that to me is shocking. How a team could go from, I think they were an eight seed going into the tournament. Yes, eight. But if you look at the teams that are left, um, Villanova was a higher seeded team than them. USC was higher than them. Arkansas was higher than them. Florida State was higher than them. Alabama was higher than them. And they've passed all of those teams on the basis of these first two games. And I find that highly skeptical. I'm, I'm highly skeptical that they so, should be the tied for the fourth of the 16. But, but Eric, teams. where the brackets matter here a lot. Like what? what region you're in and what happened in your region is I, I haven't looked at it, but presumably that could explain some of that difference. Uh, it absolutely could, or it could be because they beat a number one team that people are way overestimating their strength and quality. That's yeah. another possibility. Right, right, right. Look, we're going to lose Adi. Let's come back to the tournament after the break because there's more to talk about, but I want to hear Adi went, Adi's the first of us to go to a baseball game. I think he, Adi's down or was down in Florida and took in some spring training, is that right? Yeah, well, I was uh, first among us to get vaccinated, so I've had my 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 uh, immunity built in place. Went to Florida, very hard to get tickets, uh, and this, the place was practically empty, um, which you you imagine. I went to see the Mets Nationals in uh, out in Port St. Lucie. Uh, um, it was a lot of fun. It's real baseball, real live, being in a real place. I don't know what to say other than that. Just it was just uh, it was terrific to actually be there. As usual, most of the scoring happened on home runs, um, which is becoming more and more the way baseball seems to be played. And when we when uh, we talked with Jared Diamond later, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. How did this happen? How mm-hmm. did the home run become the dominant way of scoring? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adi, would you have known, by what means would you have known that it was coronavirus time in the game? What were the signs? Oh, okay. There was a fight between some of the security and a guy who didn't want to wear a mask. Um, <laughs> the fact that every, the seats were almost all roped off with extremely tough plastic. You just couldn't break them. Not easily. I mean, if you had a, a box cutter, you probably could have. And they had literally prepared the seats that were distributed um, ahead of time. And those were, those were open. Um, and those were the only one available. Um, one of my former students who now does the analytics um, is, is, uh, was around. He couldn't come anywhere near me and we couldn't actually talk because of, okay. uh, because of COVID restrictions. And some of them were, were actually limited. They couldn't even leave the offices. They couldn't come out into the field. But so the MLB players and coaches and staff, they have very strict regulations. The fans, the only thing you would have noticed about the fans is simply very, very few people there. Mm-hmm. Did you have to wear a mask? You talked about mask fight. Uh, yeah, you had to wear a mask unless you were actively eating. So sitting in the stands, this is driving me kind of crazy. The outdoor, spaced out, people have to wear a mask. It's something I've noticed in Philadelphia over the last couple of days. Actually, I admire it as a norm. It's just a good precaution, but it's still surprising to me the extent to which that's happening. Yeah. In these, in these really, we know now that outdoors, and especially with a little space, is safe. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball two hours of sports analytics here on sirius xm we do it every week coming to you via zoom we just lost Audie weiner he stepped away he will be back of course in fact he's gonna be back for the conversation with jared diamond in q4 we still have shane jensen and eric bradlow as well as me Cade massey and we got kind of open lines, whatever you guys want to talk about. I'm not quite done talking about March Madness. Have y'all satisfied your March Madness? So I, I'm with Shane. I've just watched a little bit more. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's the uncertainty. Maybe it's one of those years where, you know, you start seeing the feeds, the uh, Twitters and ESPNs telling you that crazy things are going on. So you pop on the TV. It was a fun opening weekend. There was a little bit of a letdown on Monday in terms of upsets. But the first three days, my goodness, that was a lot of fun. Not just upsets, but like tight games, interesting yeah. games, interesting storylines. I, 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 I don't know. I maybe maybe disagree because I think Eric, you watch a lot more basketball, both professional and college, than me. But I mean, we've all kind of noticed the the way like basketball transitions from this very free flowing game to like the last couple of minutes being very very you know a lot of ton of stoppages i think college is less prone to that it seems or at least the the the, st- the version of strategy stoppage college basketball is a little bit more free-flowing or exciting at least to me than the grind of end the end of nba games mm-hmm. but i mean i'm a, that's my own bias perhaps creeping mm-hmm. in there yeah mm-hmm. what i what i would have said is the following um the thing that certain teams do extraordinarily well is though if you have two really good guards in college basketball and you want, let's say, a slow style or a fast style, you can basically impose your will on the other team with both the shot clock, the, the frequency with which they play zone defense. Like, for example, if you play Syracuse, it's almost guaranteed it's going to be Syracuse's style of game. And, you know, they're going to pack in the zone. They're going to make you throw four or five passes to beat the zone. They're going to dribble the ball slowly up the court. I mean, you're not scoring 90 points off Syracuse. You're just not. And that's what I've noticed, that 
having two guards, two, you need two, having two really good guards in college basketball doesn't guarantee you the win, but it guarantees you that the style will be yours. And that's what I love about March Madness, because you'll have a team that one team will say, we want the game in the 50s. The other team wants the track meet game in the 90s. And who can impose their will on the other team is to the, forget the outcome. I like the stylistic matchups of the game, which is why, by the way, I wouldn't. I, I watch Syracuse play, and I'm going to tell you something. That team is going to be a tough out. They got a bunch of shooters. They know how to play the zone. Jim Beheim again has a good team with him, and that that's not a team you want to play. And if you told me they went to the Final Four again, it would not surprise me, which they did a few years ago. You remember as a last in team. Well, Eric, it's interesting to me. You mentioned them. Obviously, the Beheim story itself is one of the great stories in the tournament. With with. Um, Beheim's son playing. Yeah, Buddy Beheim. Not, not just playing, really but like, shoot. yeah. No, no, he's the he's star. Got like he... 50, 57% from behind the arc the other day. So he's carrying the team right now, which is great fun. But I noticed the ESPN columnist there has been reseeding the field after every day um, or after every round. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not an analytics-based thing, but it's still interesting to see. And we've had so much shaking up. It's interesting to see what he comes up with. And you can see kind of some of the risers and fallers because there's some compression as People go away, but some really jump, and Syracuse jumped out to me. So, by the way, this reseeding on you know posted today, Zaga, Baylor, Michigan, three number one seeds still around. Bama's a two seed. Loyola, Chicago, jumping all the way up to his now fifth ranked team among. Wow. And that's not just a. I don't think that's just a function of the bracket. They do have the easier region at this point, but it's also just what he's been impressed with. Nova. Our mainline boys, Villanova, coming in there, Florida State, and then Syracuse. Syracuse is an 11 seed, one of the highest seeds left, and they're sliding in there at what is that? That's like eighth, like halfway through one of the, you know, as Eric says, not surprising if they manage to sneak through to the, to the Final Four. I got to pass a line from a friend of some, some of the chatter, some of the radio chatter out of Kansas City because KU went down in such ugly fashion yesterday. So Big 12 in general, super disappointing. My boys – Knocked out in the first round, 14-3 upset. Um, I'm glad there was a 15-2, which took some of the attention away from the 14-3. But Kansas goes down last night to USC, 85-51. to It's the third worst, I think it's the third worst loss in Kansas program history. Some of the lines on the radio reported to me out of Kansas City. KU couldn't hit a bull's butt with a banjo. <laughs> Very evocative. I, I, I like a nice this expression. One. How bad was that on a scale of 51 to 85? How bad was that loss? So good, good sports talk show smack being talked in Kansas. What's actually interesting about that game is I watched the first part of the game and it was a little bit, it was competitive. And then I turned it back and it was all of a sudden like a 25 point game. I'm like, what happened in a very short time? The game Mm -hmm. went from like, it's not, I don't mean after two minutes. I mean like after 15 minutes, the game was competitive. And then I turned it back on. I was like, what the hell happened? And why well, could it, maybe, maybe there was a phase transition in that kind of, you, you, you talked about like, you know, like that, that imposing of a game plan, you know, I mean, if there is a kind of greater variance basically in terms of strategic makeup of teams and kind of game plans, and you, you can kind of have these things that like for the first part of the game kind of battle it out before it's kind of decided, but then one team gets into foul trouble or something like that. And it could, perhaps shift quite quickly from there mm-hmm. by the way the other thing the other only, only other thing we well there's maybe a lots of things about the tournament we haven't talked about but we haven't mentioned the probably the rarest event that happened in the tournament so far which is um a number 15 seed made the sweet 16 that's Oral right. roberts yeah. right they beat i think it was ohio state and then they mm-hmm. beat florida 
Now, yep. those are two blue chip programs. I mean, it's not like they beat, you know, I'll call it Creighton and BYU, which are still very good schools. Creighton's still in the tournament. But I'm saying they beat Ohio State and Florida. Yeah. And yeah. that's pretty real. And the fact that it's only the second time for a 15 seed to make it um, is truly remarkable. I mean, you can't give them greater than, I mean, I don't know. Did they have more than a 10 to 15% chance of winning each game? So you multiply that together, that's 2 or 3%, which is about right. You said that they've had this seeding for 35 years. It's happened twice in 35 years. Um, that actually seems high to me, twice mm-hmm. in 35 years. Then the margin, just multiplying the two game probabilities would seem to imply. I mean, it's happened 6% of the time. And But it's I even rare, like Kate pointed out earlier in the show, that the drop-off actually from 1 to 2 is the biggest drop off right so the one it's happened once i think or is that, is that right or no a 16 has beaten a one that was virginia two years ago but then they got beaten a 16 has oh never so a 16 made has never the, made it to the sweet never because they lost in the next round well it didn't it, it, it had never happened for the longest time it was this fun but no, kind of but theoretical this an, possibility to yeah i was just saying this is an interesting mathematical thing to do because let's even just be clear if if the two marginal game probabilities, if it was a quarter and a quarter, which I think is too high for a 15 seed, but if it was a quarter and a quarter, that's one out of 16, which means we'd basically see it twice in a 35-year period. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone believes a 15 seed has a 25% and a 25% chance to win. So actually, this is one of those events where I think even though it's only twice, I think it's more often than the marginal probabilities would suggest. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is, and this is maybe something when we look at the data analysis that Adi and his students do, it's happened twice now in the last four years. It didn't mm-hmm. happen for 31 years, and now mm-hmm. it's twice in the last four years. I understand it's small samples, but it's still interesting to wonder if we'll start seeing this more. Well, to go along with that, and, and one of the main causes for that is that 15s just hadn't beaten too much. And it's only happened nine times, and most of those times have been in relatively recent years. And so there's if, been if, more if, if this is If this is a continuing trend, um, if, if this trend is kind of real and, and, and continues, is that uh, an indication that there's maybe a, a, a greater amount of kind of parity in NCAA college basketball that like you, you're, you're, you're getting mm-hmm. sort of like these sort of like, I guess, you know, the, the swath of 30 to 60, you know, or teams, or I guess like the swath of 16 to 32 teams or something like that in the country is mm-hmm. just getting, is, is approaching that one to 16 level. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great question and an empirical question. We should be able to. I say mean, something and, about that. In, entirely based on on the assumption that that trend is is real yeah, and continues. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 By the way, just but, to let just to let you know, um, I was thinking of another metric. So here's, I'm sure you guys know this, but just in case you don't, the lowest seed ever to win the NCAA tournament was Villanova in 1985. They were an eight seed. Okay. Oh, and it says here, uh, sorry, UConn, uh, lowest seeds to win. And then UConn was the seventh seed in 2014. So an eight seed is the lowest seed to win the NCAA tournament. So what odds would you then put on Loyola Chicago, which is an eight, Syracuse, which is an 11, and Oral Roberts, which is a 15. I think UCLA is an 11. I put such de minimis probability on even the sum of those four. But just to show you how amazing <laughs> it was when Villanova won the tournament as an eight seed. And remember, beat, I, think, I think they were at the time also, the defending national champion Georgetown in the title game. Um, and that was the Patrick Ewing-led Georgetown team that they beat in the finals. But if Loyola Chicago won yeah. this year, I would put it as shocking as Villanova winning in 85. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm, so fi- I'm so fond of my playoff coin flip models, I'm going to put them at 116. 
No, I mean, bad, I can acknowledge bad, bad this generalization is not like this is not like playoff base, but I will say let's do it. Let's do Let's give the metric we've talked about. If you look at the betting odds, Gonzaga and Baylor basically have 50%. If I gave you, you, Kate, you can have Gonzaga and Baylor or the field. Who are you taking? So I'm not checking your maths, and I'm worried well, about the big and all that stuff. Well, it's plus 155 and plus 300. So plus 155 gives you about, I don't know, 100 over two. It's about 35 to 40%, and Baylor's 100 over 400. So that's about 25%. Matter of fact, it might even be a little more than 50%. But let's just say mm-hmm. you can have Gonzaga and Baylor or the other 14 teams. What are you doing? So if you, if you, if it was actuarially fair, I would definitely take the I would definitely take the field. And I'm inclined to take the field even more this year. As we talked about a lot last week, I just think uncertainty being so much higher this year, you just got to be more aggressive in your probabilities. And so I'm taking the, I'll, I'll take the field on that, Eric. I, I, I think I would too. But the part, again, that's surprising to me is how many of you would give Baylor, oh, sorry, Gonzaga even a 40% chance to win if I told you they were in the Final Four? That's the part uh, that's still yeah. bothering me. There's, I think I think the world thinks they see Gonzaga clearly. Like everything else is murky, but here's one team we yeah. can be confident on. And yeah. maybe maybe they they're check right. all the boxes. I mean, yeah. maybe yeah. they're right. Maybe there is less uncertainty about that team. Hey, let's talk about the NBA for a second because I'm wondering what's going on with the Lakers. We got LeBron going out, and they're you know they're kind of trolling along the bottoms of the of the seeds in the West. I thought they were supposed to be more than they are. What's, what, what's your forecast? They are the three seed right now. Let's be clear. They're still the three seed because LeBron hasn't been out for that long. Anthony Davis was out, but LeBron is. But LeBron there's so much, com- there's so much competition out there in the West. It's not much off the bottom, right? There is. If they lose a couple of games, they could drop to the six or seven seed. I think at the end of the day, they just want to make the playoffs. I don't think there's anybody in the West that scares them. I think they would rather have a rested and healthy LeBron and AD and not worry about the seeding. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I've read many articles in the last week or so that says the Lakers are better off Le- LeBron getting three weeks of rest. Yeah. Um, and if let me say, they, a lot of people have projected that if the playoffs started tomorrow, LeBron would take that boot off and he would be playing. And so I don't think that it's as dire as you think. They have a six-game lead on the number nine seed, which is Golden State. So they're going to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And number two, remember also, there's now that play-in in the NBA. So even if they ended up the ninth seed, you remember the nine, the 10 and the nine play each other or something to make it to... Okay, hold play- on. Is that is that... A, I thought that was a COVID thing or something. We, no, it is, it. it is, but still for this year, at least. I don't yeah. know. You know, it, it, it's still happening this year. So what is it exactly that happens? Like the last two teams play in for the last spot? Correct. Yeah. I think it's, no, I think what happened, yeah, I think the nine and the eight, yeah, I might have it off by one. It's either the 10 and the nine play or the nine. No, the and 10 and the nine play, and then the winner of that plays, plays the, the eight, eight to get <laughs> into the last spot. Okay. It's a one yeah, game playoff, I think, between the 10 and the nine, and then the best of three, I think, between the winner of that and the eight. You know, I, I I think it's fun. I mean, if you're going to have these bullshit one game wild card games, yeah. why not why not involve more teams? Yeah. <laughs> so give the ten a chance. To Either way, you're, you're, my only point was I don't think the Lakers are too worried that they're not going to make the playoffs. And I although let me just say, without LeBron and AD, they could easily end up. You know, they could easily end up the seven or eight seed, yeah. which just means that you know. They will end up playing Utah or the Clippers or someone like that in the first round, and that's not going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my statement, conditional on the Lakers making the playoffs and conditional on their players being healthy by then, none of this matters. None yeah, of what okay. their, their current performance does not matter at all. 
Well, that sounds about right. Anything interesting going on in the East right now? We're always a little bit Sixers centric. Um, mm-hmm. Anything worth attention? I mean, I'm still so down on the possibility of the Sixers winning the title. I don't like their mix of players. Um, I did notice something interesting again. They played the Knicks the other night. I watched the end of the game. The Sixers got lucky to win. But an interesting stat from that was Ben Simmons has never lost to the Knicks. He's 14-0 and in his career against the Knicks, which is an interesting stat because it's not like they were 60-20 and every year that he played. Uh, maybe, as Matt's saying, it's now 15-0. and So they've never, he's never in his career lost to the Knicks. Um, but I, I just think the Sixers are an ill-conceived team again. Again, your best player is your center. That's never good. Your other best player can't shoot the ball. That's not good. Tobias Harris is now your go-to guy. That's never good. And so your best three players are all either flawed or they can't be the kind of people in this slog-down game that uh, Shane just talked about. You, you, these are none of the three guys you want in the slog down game at the end of the game. And so that's the problem. I, I don't believe in them at all. I think the Bucks have now won six or seven straight. I think the Bucks are rising. I still think you don't want to play the Celtics or the Heat in the, in the playoffs. The Nets are by far the best team in the East. I think the Sixers may not get out of the first round. I mean, wow. but I mean, so Eric, so I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly concede your point to the extent that they are, no, the, the Bucks and Nets are higher probabilities for me as far as making it to the final, uh, to the championship. What about the Heat? What about the Heat? Who made it? I, w- I, I put the Sixers as the third highest probability still. Higher than the Heat? Higher than the Heat. Higher, higher than, than the, the Celtics, Celtics who blew yeah. them out last year? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm happy to put them in the same tier. I mean, the Celtics don't even have a winning record right now. Nah, I mean, they're going to have matter. to show. I, I mean, I know. I'm, I, I am of the. Certainly, I pull the none of this matters card an awful lot with the NBA regular season. But, I mean, you know, not even having a winner record. I'm that's a lot of losses guys, to pull up for supposedly. Let me, let me jump in real quick and give you some numbers from 538 just to bring a little, little data to the conversation. Yeah. Nets and Bucks are the only teams. I mean, Sixers are way down there. Celtics are way down there. Raptors are down there. I mean, it's kind of a West-heavy list other than – the, the 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 clip the 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 nets and the bucks so and by the way on the 76ers celtics thing eric is so down the sixers it's a hometown boy who's disaffected the elo rankings from 538 had the sixers above the celtics right now mm-hmm. it's fine i mean you know i'm happy to put all of the the media playoff teams into one uncertain bucket yeah no None i, of I whom think we're better than the we, nets we, the we bucks. can all agree that we can all agree i think that the gap is from you know it's the bucks and the nets in the east and then it's there that's the big gap and then there's this whole well let me ask you something should we be tanking again and, and let me say what i mean by that you're in a similar situation to where the bucks the sixers were when they trusted the process because look they're not going to win in the next couple of years in my view they're not going to win the east the Bucs and the Nets are going to be better than them the next couple of years. And I'm not even convinced the Bucs and the Nets will win the NBA title. So now you're talking about potentially your maximum outcome, in my view, is the second round of the East. You're not making the championship finals in the East. I think the Bucs and Nets will be in there. And you're not going to win the finals. So do you break this team up? That's, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I personally know because I mean, things in the NBA can change so quickly with like one, like one random star decides to go to the nets and all of a sudden they become a super team over like a, a year or two period from out of nowhere. 
By the and way, what you need watch- to do for that to happen is be a desirable place to go yeah, and have right. a culture of winning. Like constantly tanking, I think affects the probability that players want to be there and and by- and, and, and retain retain them. I mean, you'd and- be wasting Embiid; he'd go. Well, that's the thing. You got that one asset that's a that's a generational asset. Yeah. And we saw Maury. Maury's MO in Houston was to keep on trying, keep on trying, keep on trying, keep on trying. You know, he always was making a deal. He was always bringing in a new player. He was trying to be smart about it using cutting-edge analytics, but he was not tanking. He was he was trying to keep that team competitive and he managed to do it. He never got over the hump, right? Never got that never got that championship, but he did not do the tank approach. And I mean, I think the tank approach is high risk anyway, because it doesn't even guarantee you get those generational talents. It does give you extra lottery tickets for them, but does not kind of guarantee it. Like, I mean, the arguments, I could, the legit arguments I could make for tanking is something like what the Jacksonville Jaguars and Jets were doing this year, where there's maybe a generational talent available and their only way, and they are guaranteed to get it if they're the worst team. And that's the only way they will get that person. But I think in basketball, I mean, you don't have to, you know, I mean, have a realistic expectation what your season's involved and make plans around that. But I don't think you necessarily have to tank because you're not necessarily guaranteed those top uh, draft picks anyway. And you create this kind of culture, I think, you know, this negative culture around the team because, you know, you know, these are professional athletes. They don't like to lose. So on the NBA front, there was also prominent passing this past week. Eric, you got any any background for us on – well, Elgin Baylor, Elgin Baylor was one of the all-time, all-time, all-time greats. I mean, he, um, you know, he, it's unfortunate for a number of rings that he played at the opposite, the Bill Russell Celtics. So that was exactly his era. And so, you know, he played with Wilt for a long time. I, I believe they won one title together, you know, but if you think about it, this is the most amazing thing. Wilt Chamberlain was with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, and they couldn't beat the Celtics. We're talking about no, three of the top 10 players of all times. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about Elgin Baylor, I, I, I love this stat. He's one of only four 25-10 guys in the history of the NBA, 25 points and 10 rebounds. Wilt, Bob Pettit, uh, Elgin Baylor, and the mailman Carl Malone, 25 and 10. Eric, if you were going to, analogize him to a current player or a recent player what would be a good comp he wasn't the size of a Carl Malone so it was anything like that he would be like your great small forward today that can really score and rebound so whoever you would put in that model in like the 6-6 to 6-8 mode of can really score and rebound um I'm just trying to think who I would even put in that mode. That's a today. lot of that's a lot of boards for our small forward. That's that, it I is. Guess that's what so, makes him impressive. He was a super accurate. He was supposed athletic guy, acrobatic athletic guy. He was, and um, yeah, just a hard nosed player, known to be an extraordinarily hard nosed player. I don't even know who would be his comparable player today because I don't think you know that position's kind of gotten phased out a little bit in the NBA, which is there isn't a lot of. Um, you know, production from his position anymore in the NBA, but he would certainly be in the top 25 players of all time in NBA history. Got it. Okay. All right. Good fun. Well, we only have, you know, six more weeks to speculate on the NFL draft <laughs> and talk about these topics. Our-, our fourth quarter is going to be an interview with Jared Diamond. Um, Jared Diamond has been the national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal since 2017. 
And prior to that, he spent a season as the Wall Street Journal's Yankees beat writer and three seasons as their Mets beat writer. So I would guess Jared is based in New York. I'll mm -hmm. confirm that in a, in a second. Mm -hmm. um, and in his current role, he leads the newspaper's baseball coverage. And I've read his articles, but that's not particularly why he's here. He's here because he's the author of Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution, a book that I devoured when I saw it. I don't know why I didn't see it when it first came out. I don't know why, Jared, I didn't see it. Um, but anyway, welcome to the show, and it's great to have you on. Yeah, you probably didn't see it because it came out about a week after we all went into lockdown. Oh, <laughs> wow. That is the reason. That is undoubtedly the reason why. And baseball got forgotten as we got deluged with um, with COVID. So I'm happy to bring you to our attention now for the start of an, a baseball season that's starting on time. I got to throw out a note to, to one of our longtime friends of our show in our community, Jack, uh, uh, Ron Yurko. He posted it on Twitter and that's how I saw it. I'm like, holy shit, how do I not know about this book? Um, anyway, just uh, earlier in our, in our show, we talked a little bit about the rise of home runs in baseball. I had the fortune of being in Florida last week where I watched the Mets play the Nationals and there was not much scoring and all of it, almost all of it, I think, occurred on home runs. There were a bunch of them. Uh, one was a, was a Titanic monster moonshot that must have gone 440 feet, but the other three landed just barely outside the ball, by, uh, uh, off the fences. So I'm going to cue you up a question with a little bit of statistics to get us started. So the uh, home runs have been increasing pretty steadily since the 1970s, and they really peaked in 2000, which, of course, was the, the era of the, of the steroid era. Um, and then they got lower, but not substantially lower. I mean, I mean, there weren't all these, you know, behemoths hitting 40 of them, but they went down. They didn't return to 1970s levels. But since 2015, it's been like a rocket spike in the number of homers. So um, that's, that's the observation that any baseball fan knows. And what we're going to talk about is kind of why that is. So let's, I'll ask you, Jared, why do you think that is? And, and then you can tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book, The Swing King. Yeah, it's like, I wish there were one simple answer as to why home runs have been rising. But I think at this point, after this has now been going on for six years, we really could narrow it down to two things operating in tandem. One is the baseball itself. Uh, it's now been proven many times over that the ball is more aerodynamic than it was six or seven years ago. Uh, we still don't exactly know why. We don't exactly know what's caused the changes. Rawlings, who makes the baseballs, they can't explain the changes. The scientists who've studied it can't explain the, the, the changes. But we know that that, is a that has been about half 50 to 60% of what's caused the spike is due to the ball. The rest, the other, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I've seen all the data and I agree that we know the ball is different. Where I have a little bit, where, where, where I'm going to question as a statistician is how do you get to the 50% mark? This is where it gets quite speculative. And I've seen a lot of articles that no one really puts their, puts their finger on it because you can, because aerodynamicity doesn't translate that easily into distance and, and there's all kinds of other issues. How do we get the 50%? So Major League Baseball commissioned uh, a panel of scientists. They've come out with two different reports. One, uh, I believe, came out in 2018. And the most recent one came out in December of 2019. Yeah. And that was the report that the scientists, and I, and I say that in quotes because, look, I don't necessarily understand how they, what they concluded or how they concluded it. But they concluded that it was 50 to 60% caused by the ball. 
and the rest caused by what they described, the words in the report, were change in launch conditions, which uh, is just a fancy way of saying how batters swing the bat. Uh, batters looking to hit the ball in the air. Uh, and now look, these two things operate in tandem, right? Because if you know the ball is going to cut through the air, uh, you are certainly more incentivized to try to hit the ball uh, in the air. Uh, so these two, these two factors are to some extent working together. But what I have been most interested in uh, and what Swing Kings was most interested in was that part, that 40 to 50 percent, the change in launch conditions element. Okay, so the launch conditions means essentially two things. It means the angle that you hit it and how hard you hit it. So let's talk about swing kings, because if you're swinging, and I've been swinging a baseball bat for longer than you, because I'm a little older than you, <laughs> and, and it's one of the things that I love to do and think about and enjoy watching, um, how you swing the bat can clearly affect the launch angle, and of course, how hard you swing the bat affects the velocity off the ball. So how, do you, how did that change? And, and, and tell us a story of whether or not you believe it has changed, and how did that happen? I think anyone who's played Little League in the last, you know, 70 years has probably been taught by somebody that you want to swing down on the ball, uh, or maybe you've heard you want to swing level. level. I was taught level. Yeah, Yeah, you want to try to hit the ball back up the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of time you want to hit the ball on the ground. You want to hit low line drives. That's the ideal sort of swing. And that was what was taught all the way up into the major league level for most of baseball history. Uh, Now, what's changed in the last, let's say, 10 years, at least in the mainstream, is there's been a a movement to hit the ball in the air by swinging up. Not swing down, not swing level, but actually swing up with a slight uppercut and hit the bottom part of the ball as opposed to the top. Okay. In order to hit the ball in the air. you here because... Just, um, I'm, I'm going to ask a naive question. If you think about swinging a ball, you do you do have to swing down to get the ball from your the bat from your shoulder, and then it's got to come up to get up on the other side. So it is a sweep. So you do go down and then up at some point. So what is shifting? Is it the is it the the low point has been moved? Or so be really specific here. What is shifting? <laughs> okay, I'll be as specific as I can. <laughs> the the traditional swing that has been taught for many years was essentially, the way it was essentially taught was you want to bring the barrel of your bat on a straight line to the ball and then sort of finish through it. The thinking being, the thinking being, well, shortest distance between two points of the straight line. So you bring your barrel straight down to the ball. When you, when you make contact, then you might sort of finish up. But the, the most of the swing is sort of in a straight line from your shoulder right to the ball. What's being taught now, what's being taught now uh, is what's called getting your bat on plane of the pitch. That's often what you hear, be, get on plane. Essentially what it is, instead of going to a straight line to the ball, it's dropping your bat backwards behind the ball, behind the plane of the ball, and then swinging up through it. So essentially, instead of this straight line followed by maybe an up, sort of like a little V, it's more like a Ferris wheel. 
Okay, so that, so I understand now. So basically, what you're doing is you're getting you're 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 not getting your bat directly to the ball, which means you have to start swinging a little earlier. Um, although you obviously have to time it so that your bat hits the ball in the same place as it used to, but you would get the ball down in the strike zone. I mean, down at the level of the of the ball, actually below the ball, because the ball's going down by gravity, and so you want to be meeting the ball going up. That's essentially what you're saying. So you got to get that bat way down earlier. So now, here's my question: How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's so it, like I, it's funny. You're talking about I just swing earlier. What's so amazing about what's being taught now, this slightly different way of swinging, is that it actually, if you're doing it right, you're actually giving yourself a little bit more time to make contact. And, and here's what I mean: if you're swinging on a straight line to the ball, and this would be so much easier if we had if I could draw a little picture, but unfortunately we cannot. We can't, not on radio. But if, you, but if you could picture swinging straight down to the ball, you have a very small window where your bat and the ball will be in the same place. You're swinging on this straight line down through the ball. The ball is coming on a straight line the other way. And you have this very small fraction of an instant where bat and ball will connect. But if you're getting your bat behind the ball on plane of the pitch early, you now give yourself some margin for error where if you uh, sort of are, are too early, if you mistime it a little bit and your body's sort of out of whack, but your bat's in the right place, you actually have more time in the hitting zone where you could still get your barrel on the ball. So that's why it's so important to sort of get on plane. Some, some coaches, they sort of call it getting into the slot. Essentially okay. getting your barrel behind the ball. Right. So I understand it gives you much more room for error. It also means you're swinging. You're, the ball is going down. Your, your bat is going up, which means you're much more likely to launch the ball in the air. M- much harder to do if you're going in that V shape. But let me ask you a specific question. I was taught level when I was in Little League. Um, and that produced, that's what they were telling me. And now I read your book and I, I dumped into I, I just got dived into videos. How do, Tell me about the process by which these sluggers of today switch from presuming what the way they were taught, like I was, to this new swing. How did that happen? And you actually introduce a whole bunch of really interesting characters who made that happen. And, and, and can you tell us about these individuals and, and, and their relationship to Major League Baseball? Yeah, absolutely. For, look, for some hitters, for some great hitters, they didn't need to be taught this. If you look at guys like, let's talk about Mike Trout. He's the best player in baseball. I don't know if he was taught to swing level, but he he doesn't swing level and he never did. Some Mm. people are just blessed and you tell them, hey, your goal is to hit the ball as far as you can. Their bodies just know how to do it. Mm. It doesn't happen for everybody, which which is what interested me, the people that needed to learn. Uh, There are a lot of hitters, good hitters. J.D. Martinez of the Red Sox, Justin Turner of the Dodgers, Josh Donaldson now on the Twins, who were taught to swing level, did swing level, and have had to completely rethink, relearn how to swing the bat. And they did that uh, with some very unusual coaching. Much of what has happened in sort of the hitting space did not happen inside Major League Baseball first. It happened sort of on the margins of Major League Baseball, originating from people, from coaches who uh, had the freedom to innovate and had no masters to serve inside sort of the establishment of Major League Baseball. And through fortune and word of mouth, in some cases, were able to actually work with guys like J.D. Martinez and Josh Donaldson and say, hey, 
I know I didn't play baseball myself and I know I don't work in major league baseball, but would you be willing to hear me out and listen to what I have to say? And uh, it sort of changed not just how people swing, but also who's qualified to teach the swing where suddenly these coaches that are once on the fringes on the outskirts of the industry are now becoming insiders because of these innovations. So I'm going to ask you a question that I posed to uh, someone who works at a team as an analyst. And um, one of the things that I know in, in the teams have gone whole hog into technology, the Rapsodo machines, all the high the cameras, the, 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 all the stuff with pitching. When I just came from a Sabermetrics conference where I gave a presentation where they, they showed all this, this stuff they put on the bodies, all about pitching, all about pitching. And, and I asked after reading your book, are they doing things like that? Are you doing that? I won't say the team in particular. Are you doing that with your team on the hating side? And the answer was no. And um, the interesting observation that was made was on the pitching side, we get immediate feedback. When we tell someone to do something, I can immediately see it in their pitch, whether it's the spin axis, uh, the movement, the velocity. We don't have mechanisms in, 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 in hitting to show other thing, other thing other than launch angle and velocity. We don't really have, I can't show you, I can't see where your bat goes. We don't, I don't think we have that technology. So the people who did the training that you're describing, they didn't do it with tech. They did it with other mechanisms. Uh, what, how did they get, it, get people to learn? I mean, what, it, what was the process? In, in many cases, it started with being early adopter of video. That, that's a big video. Yeah. We don't really think of video as technology anymore because it's so ubiquitous, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't always uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of baseball history. Using video was a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. There was this perception that, Hey, I know how to hit. I'm a major league hitter. Why would I need to go look at my swing? Uh, and there's some of these coaches that that well, doesn't make much sense to me. I'm going to actually use video as a tool and try to, uh, and look at it and see what you could learn from it. And the first thing that these coaches learned by looking at video was that very often what hitters think they do or say they do in their swing and what they're actually doing, not always the same. And I think any baseball fan that watches Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN uh, has heard that firsthand because how often have we heard Alex Rodriguez talk about how he was just trying to hit line drives at the middle and he was trying to swing level on the ball. But anybody who watches Alex Rodriguez's swing knows that he is not hitting the top half of the ball. He is, has a swing that's designed to launch. That's why he hit like 680 homers or whatever insane number of homers did. So that, that really was a big one. And now as we move forward, the technology with hitting is improving. We are getting to a place where things like bat sensors exist. They're not as sophisticated as where we are on the pitching side, but we are moving to a world where you'll be able to put devices on your bat that could show the exact sort of trajectory of your bat frame by frame by mm-hmm. frame. But it is interesting because your, your, your analyst friend and what you said, totally right. Pitching has been so far ahead of hitting in the technology department. And I think it also is another reminder of what makes hitting so sort of vexing and alluring. Uh, Ted Williams wrote a book called The Science of Hitting. Tony Gwynn wrote a book called The Art of Hitting. Uh, and it's probably they're both a little bit right. So I see. Okay, interesting. So I'm going to bring up Ted Williams. Um, and I'm going to bring up, him up in a, in a certain context. So um, one of the things that you talk about is launch angle, getting on plane. The other issue is power. 
and and one of the key um, characters in your book is J.D. Martinez. And he not only seems to have gotten on plane, but also is hitting the crap out of the ball velocity wise. So um, and this is why I bring up bring up uh, Ted Williams and the, the science of hitting and, and, and look back historically. I had the incredible fortune of going to Ted Williams baseball camp when I was a kid, wow. which, which he owned. <laughs> and in fact, my bunkmate was his son, John Henry Williams. He was above me and he would come every summer and talk to us. And one of the things that that that's, that sticks out in my mind is uh, he wasn't the most. Um, he wrote a book about it, but but hitting is again very hard, right? To to, to actually explain. And one of the, there's a, a lot that he talked about, and I, I won't get into. But one thing that was very interesting to me, and I want your reaction to, is everyone always talks about if you listen to people on the radio or on television describe the hitters where they get their power, they'll say things like their legs and their wrists, their back and their shoulders. But Ted Williams said that all your power comes from your hips. That's mm-hmm. all it is. And this is a guy who was a stick, right? And he was a, you know, that was his nickname. Um, when he came up, later he filled out. And one of the things that I noticed about contemporary uh, players, and I think this is where the Swing Kings gets into it, is that the many contemporary players, they tend to have a much more upright um, uh position and they don't get their whole body axis just for torquing into this gigantic motion which which you get more torque when you bring your bat in a big swoop and i wish i could show on our radio what i'm doing mm-hmm. with my hands but basically i started looking at some of those old videos and i saw the way they torqued their body allowed this you get much sooner if you think about just the basic physics you get much more power if your power is coming from the twisting action you want your twist to be longer before it makes contact so if you can get that twist of the of the hips and then get your body down, you're just going to end up putting more power behind it. And and I saw that in these old hitters and I wasn't seeing it in the new hitters, and I, the old great hitters. I didn't go you can't go find videos of, you know, Tom Dick and Harry. You can only find the the Mantles and the and the, and the Williams and the Roots. Um and so is that the question that I have is what do you think about that hypothesis of the hips and how that connects to getting in plane? And do, do yeah. the teachers talk about that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's well established. No disagreement from anybody at this point that the lower body is where your power comes from. Uh, sort of your core, that's where it comes from. Now, bat speed is also crucial, but it's all sort of related. We do know that we do know with the benefit of technology is that there is a clear relationship between exit velocity and bat speed. Bat speed is not something we could actually measure that we couldn't measure before. Sounds super obvious, yeah. but it's just a good data point to know, but yes, absolutely. This emphasis on the hips and we really, we've seen it throughout history, right? Part of what makes baseball, I think so special is that it's, you don't need to necessarily be like a super gigantic monster freak physically to be a great hitter. I mean, Jose Altuve, it could be a great hitter. Dustin Pedroia could be a great hitter. And there's really no other sport where you could really say that about where Aaron judge and Jose Altuve could be playing the same game and be equally good at it with those different body types. And what's, what's always fascinated me about old hitters versus new hitters. Yeah. There's more home runs hit now overall, but if we think back throughout baseball history, people don't hit the ball farther now than they did. Then we don't see people hitting the ball 550 feet, 500 feet. Somehow the, the maximum distance that human being hit a baseball Basically, has not changed in like a hundred years, which is and I bizarre. think that's amazing. It's bizarre because if you look at the at the speed changes in 
track and field. Look at the size of the of the of the football players, the basketball players. The three point percentages are way higher than they ever were. Um, this, I mean, every other sport seems to get have gotten better, yet no one's hitting it farther than than Ruth did. Back in the 1920s. I mean, he was using a 54-ounce bat. And bat speed times uh, velocity and mass are the two factors that maybe people would. Maybe maybe Aaron Judge, if the the pitchers weren't throwing 98 uh, regularly and they were throwing (laughs) 85, maybe what they used to, or 88, and you gave him a 55-ounce bat, maybe he can hit at 600 feet. It's hard to know, right? But (laughs) I'm totally with you on that. But actually, let's go back to some of the old styles. So, So I went and looked at Mickey Mantle. Uh, I just stared at like a, a hunt dozen of his videos, uh, um, the old pictures from the side where you really see your from his back. And he had that. He has what I would consider to be the perfect swing by the modern swing king. Mm. Definition. Um, his it just gets in plane. It's almost like you can't see it. These weren't high video. They were going stepping by step. These weren't high speed cameras. But that it just it just rocket ship twist. The bat went down really low, and it's almost as if his back was backwards, and he was swinging mm-hmm. up. Um, it, it looks, if you had to look by eye, well, who had the most powerful swing you'd ever see, that was it. And if you look at, say, a guy like Ruth, didn't have huge arms. He didn't even have huge legs, but he had the thickest middle you've ever seen. I don't mean before he got fat, but just like the widest, uh, that's where his power came from. And I almost wonder whether the, 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 the home runs, the distance is coming from you take a little guy like Altuve, you show him how to use all his power, and there it goes. Yeah, it, exactly. It's exactly right. You, you could. There is clearly something that you could teach, and you could teach someone how to use their body, and that's why you spend so much time strengthening their cores. If you think back to the steroid era, these in two thousand, there's so much emphasis on these giant biceps. You know, the Mark McGuire bodybuilder type look. Right. Uh, we don't see that as much. No. The guys that look like that. Yeah, steroids is a, is a part of why, but it's also a, a different emphasis on what we want to strengthen. And we now know it's not really about how gigantic your biceps are or how thick your neck is. It's about your middle. It's about your core, about your hips. Mm-hmm. It's about sort of your upper thighs and how it sort of connects to your, your midsection. And I, I look, we don't see baseball players without their shirts on that often, often, but I have to imagine for every great hitter, it's probably pretty impressive. Like, in their lower abdomen region from a muscle standpoint. Yeah, um, I actually, I mean, no doubt it, doubt it is. Um, I wonder, you, one of the things you didn't talk about in Swing Kings, I wonder if there's research into this. Um, in, the, in the training, when, you, when they remade, you have a couple hitters where you talk about it extensively. There's absolutely fascinating. Donaldson, but Martinez was one of them. Um, several others, uh, um, I don't remember offhand, they, they re- feature quite prominently in the book. Um, you don't actually talk about the methods, right? Because that's probably hard to write about. Were any of the methods um, actual weight room or exercises, or was it all just practice with a ball and a bat? In the case of the major leaguers, it really was more uh, the latter. And, and that's because, look, a guy like J.D. Martinez, for instance, he was in the major league <laughs> uh, yeah. with, 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 a, with what would be described. And if you go watch J.D. Martinez with Houston on YouTube sometime, his swing was ugly. I mean, I know nothing about hitting, I, but I anyone could watch J.D. Martinez swing with Houston and go, how, how is that even possible that he made the major leagues with a swing like that? And like, the answer that's just a testament to just like sheer athletic ability that he was able to essentially will himself to success 
at a very high level with a swing that was wholly inefficient and ugly. And then suddenly when he goes to meet Craig Wallenbrock, who was a coach, who's one of the really probably my favorite character in the entire book, uh, Craig Wallenbrock told him, hey, I'm going to have to totally remake your swing from scratch, but you clearly have gifts. Because if you didn't have gifts, you wouldn't be you wouldn't have made the release with this swing. You wouldn't so, have even come close. So the gifts are hand-eye coordination, which is the thing that you just can't teach. The uh, Major League Baseball players have vision that averages 2015. They have unbelievable athleticism in a way that's not necessarily the same kind of athleticism you need to play football or basketball. It's this coordination of a whole bunch of senses. So uh, no, no doubt J.D. Martinez had those in overabundance, and he just didn't have a nice swing. Um, it's, I haven't seen J.D. Martinez's old swing, but remember Hunter Pence? Didn't he have the weirdest swing I've ever seen? Um, Super weird. still playing? <laughs> he just retired. He, he retired after, I believe, 2019. Hunter was in the book, actually. I, I, yeah. I, talked, uh, I talked with I wanted Hunter to bring the- him up because he tried to remake his swing, and I wanted to know what happened. Obviously, 2020 got in the way. Well, he had a great season. He, re- he remade his swing between 18 and 19, mm-hmm. Hunter Pence. In 19, he had a great season, made the all-star team with Texas. Uh, sort of inexplicably it was really remarkable but here's the thing even about hunter pence right he has a very weird swing but there's a certain point in his swing where it's absolutely beautiful and it's sort of just obfuscated and obscured by all of his weird sort of quirks and ticks right he has all this weird setup and all these weird movements it looks really ugly but guess what at the end of the day he's getting that barrel where it needs to be he's uh-huh. just taking sort of an odd route there uh, Jared, do you think you could actually watch a player live and see and diagnose their swing, or do you need to go on video and slow it down? I don't think I personally, in most cases, could because it's just too fast. Yeah, it's yeah. so fast, and I think that's why we really didn't have a revolution like this until more recently, because suddenly we were able to slow swings down, sort of more. Uh, I remember talking to Craig Wallenbrock, and one thing he told me watching swings in real time. He used to be a batting practice pitcher for great hitters. And he said that hitters who swung well, he felt like he couldn't see the bat until the last second. It was like he never could pick the bat, the ball coming off the bat. Whereas with lesser hitters, he felt like he saw it the whole way. Now he couldn't explain what was going on because he had no way to sort of prove it, but that was sort of his recollection, what he saw. And then suddenly he looks at the video and it makes a lot of sense because those great hitters are getting their bats behind the ball and they're kind of swooping up at the last second. Uh, but it took that slow motion to sort of ability for him to really see it. That's amazing. Um, listen, uh, we're coming to the end, but I want to ask you a question. One of the things, uh, an angle that you you sort of weaved through this, the uh, the book was your own your own hitting experience. I know you're playing a, a game as an annual with a journalist in Yankee Stadium. You had me. You had me going. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sitting here going, I want to be Jared Diamond here, <laughs> and being on that field, uh, that would be my dream. Um, and he actually worked with your swing. How's it going? Yeah, it's you know, I, I'm. We didn't have a softball season last year, unfortunately, right. because of a 2020 because of the pandemic. We do play every year a game at Yankee Stadium and a game at Fenway Park. Is it New a York softball media. game or is it baseball? That's a baseball game. Okay. Right. It's a hardball, regular baseball game, New York media versus Boston media. It's a longstanding tradition. We didn't play last year, but we'll be back out there this year. Okay. And, you know, I ready? thought to myself, I'm getting, I thought, look, 
if I'm going to write about how these swing changes have made hitters better, I need to see if it can actually work for anybody. And I'm definitely the definition of anybody. I'm just a random guy off the street. <laughs> right, exactly. And did you get any? Did you did you get any progress? What was the end result? The first swung I took uh, connected to the technology, the exit velocity was about sixty miles an hour. Sixty. That's the bat two. speed. That's that was my exit speed. velocity of the ball or? Vo- of the of the ball. Oh my wow! First hit. Okay. Right. And by the end of it, it was like up into the eighties. So. Wow. It's not quite a hundred, yeah, like Aaron Judge, but it's still a big improvement. I think at the right angle, a ninety-three mile per hour exit velocity might clear Yankee Stadium, maybe even yep. a little lower. Absolutely, so, I wasn't too far away. You weren't too far <laughs> away. That would be my dream, and I, to hit a ball out of Yankee Stadium before I die, it's not going to happen unless things get really, <laughs> really lucky. Um, I'm a big guy, but I haven't swung in a lot, the bat uh, for hardball in a long time. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to you, Jared. Thanks for joining us on uh, Wharton Moneyball. That's been the that's the end of our fourth quarter. Thank you everyone for joining us on this hour of our two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Um, I want to th- big thanks to uh, our guest Jared Diamond, our producer um, Matthew Datz, our, our uh, sound engineer Dion Simpkins. I want everyone to enjoy their work, enjoy their sports, enjoy their statistics, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.